Welcome to the Disney View Podcast. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer. He's a one-time cast member, and he's been to Disney World literally hundreds of times. Listen in as he talks about one of his favorite things, the Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando, and occasionally beyond the Orlando theme park. And now, here's your host. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, the evolution of my magic got me to thinking about tickets and the history of tickets at Walt Disney World and really how Disney has protected itself against counterfeiting over the years. So I wanted to kind of take a look back at the ticket history and kind of talk about how that all fits together and how that fits in with my magic and where Disney is going with the wristbands and all of the things that they're trying to do. Now, I want to think about this uh, talk about tickets in a couple of parts. The first part I wanted to talk about was sort of the prices and how the price increases have gone over the years. So if you consider that in 1972, about a year after the park opened, there was about a price of $5.75 to buy the uh, pack of tickets to have the entry ticket and have a, a couple of tickets to be able to ride different attractions. If you consider the price of each one of the different attractions and buying these different A, B, C, D, and E tickets, to have a reasonable day in the park and see a lot of the attractions that were there, maybe a couple more than once, it might have cost you around $8 to have a day in the park. Yeah, about 8 bucks in 1972. That's pretty amazing. If you flash forward about 10 years, um, you'd find that in 1982, around the time that Epcot opened, it was $11 to uh, have that same experience where you'd go in and uh, be able to see the see all the different attractions. Now, by the time that Epcot had opened, they had done away with the A, B, C, D, and E tickets, and now they offered a um, multi-day ticket to be able to get in. It's the first time that they were doing that, and it would cost you about $11 to, uh, to spend the day at the park. In 1992, they started offering longer passes and uh, offered opportunities to come in and uh, park hop and do some different things between the... Uh, of the three parks now, because the uh, Disney's MGM Studios had opened in 1989, and uh, it was about $33 for a day to get into the parks. And then we flash ahead to 2002, about 10 years after that, and the uh, price was set at about $48 for a single-day ticket. So if you think about some of the ticket op- offerings they had, there were new discounts that they were putting out there, and uh, it was about $48 to get in and, and spend a day at any of the uh, four parks at that point. And then, of course, in uh, 2012, uh, the most recent uh, year, uh, it was about $85 for a single-day ticket. And again, you could get uh, different price points depending on how many uh, days you bought into a ticket and different opportunities you had, but about 85 bucks to get into the park. So you think about the, uh, the increase in price, and you realize that the price increase has been really pretty great. Um, if you think about the inflation rates uh, over time, so from 72 and eight to 82, you had the largest amount of inflation. It was um, 130% inflation from 72 to 82, and then it was uh, 45% from 80, 82 to 92, and then from 92 to 2002, about 30%, and then again from 2002 to 2012, around 30%. Now, the biggest increase, of course, was in that first 10 years uh, between the time that the Magic Kingdom and Epcot opened. And it just so happens that that time period was time when we had a uh, gas crisis and some other things happening in this country. So it's no wonder that we had a large increase in um, inflation at that period of time. But the interesting thing is that Disney didn't really increase ticket prices a whole lot in that same period of time, which I find really fascinating because inflation was really high, but the ticket prices remained relatively flat. 
But overall, that means that uh, between 1972 and 2012, there was about 450% inflation. Sounds like a ridiculous number, but if you think about that span of time, that's a, that's a pretty fair amount of time, and you had that one 10-year span where there was a large amount of inflation. But inflation really got to the point of about you know four times the amount that you had in 1972 to the time you were in 2012. Now, if ticket prices were tied to inflation or somehow related to inflation, you might expect then that from the time the tickets, tickets were sold in 1972 and you could get in for about $8 to spend a day in the park, that at about 450% inflation, you might see something on the order of $35, maybe $40 for a ticket in 2012. But ticket prices have outpaced inflation, and I guess you shouldn't be surprised by that. Disney's uh, price points increase as a result of people's ability to pay to go into the parks. They're paying for their own park upkeep. There's a lot of other things that they're doing. This expansion into Fantasyland, where it's a billion-dollar expansion. Some of the other attractions and things they're building, they have to pay for that somehow. And the easiest way to pay for it is by increasing the ticket price. And since the market will bear that, they can certainly do that. Another piece I was thinking about related to that is what was Disney's income at the Walt Disney World Resort? So I looked back at their annual reports, and it's a little hard to kind of parse out and tease out all the little pieces to it, but I'm going to give you a rough estimate of what their income is simply based on the Walt Disney World Resort and kind of forgetting about the other things, um, realizing that parks are a percentage of the overall profit and so on. Now, it looks like in 1972, Disney made about $150 million in 1972 dollars, so that would have been their net profit solely in Walt Disney World. In 1982, they actually lost a little bit of money and made $110 million uh, in the Walt Disney World Resort. Uh, part of that had to do with uh, expansion and actually building Epcot at that point in time. They had had to take some charge-offs against that because of the uh, size of the park and the scope of the build. Uh, and because they had fewer properties at that point than they have today, it looks like they made around $110 million in that, in that year. In 1992, it's about $258 million, and then in 2002, it was $350 million, and then in 2012, approximately $475 million in the Walt Disney World Resort alone. Now, it all makes sense, starting from like 1982 and going forward, that the, the there was an increase in profit that was made at the Walt Disney World Resort. You think about the number of hotels that have been built, the number of uh, parks that have opened, and different things that have been offered. Certainly, making more profit on the uh, Walt Disney World Resort certainly happened. And the reason I present that information is for context. So if you look at the um, percentage of the ticket sales and how many people came to the parks versus what the uh, profit was, it gives a perspective on where the uh, ticket price is going. As long as they can continue to make an operating profit, and a large one at that, they'll continue to increase ticket prices once or maybe twice a year to uh, be able to accommodate what they want to do. Now next, I wanted to talk about the tickets themselves and really how Disney protects itself against counterfeiting and the possibility of resale of tickets outside of their realm so that they own the exclusive right to be able to come into the parks. And through authorized resellers, you can actually purchase tickets. And how does Disney protect itself in that sense? Well, the answer is in the uh, ticket design itself. If you look back at the original tickets that they had, the A, B, C, D, and E tickets that they used to sell, now, in that packet, there was a, a couple of things. There was an admission ticket to be able to get in the park. There was also a, a transportation ticket that allowed you to use the bus system or the monorail system. And there was also a, a number of attraction tickets. So you had uh, seven or 11 attraction tickets that were in there. And you could ride any of the attractions that were available. So each one of the attractions took one of those A through E tickets. And that's why you hear about things being uh, different uh, ticket types. 
So the A tickets were the kind of uh, low wattage attractions. It was like the, the uh, trolley, you took an A ticket, or there was a, uh, used to be a fire truck that would ride up uh, along Main Street, and that was an A ticket, and so on. So those were like the A tickets, and the B tickets were the next group of tickets, and the C ones were, you know, the better, the better attractions, and then the D ones were even better attractions, and the E ones were the great attractions. Those were the ones that had the most thrill, the audio animatronics, told the biggest story, and so forth. So the e-tickets included Pirates of the Caribbean, the Jungle Cruise, the Country Bear Jamboree, the Haunted Mansion, the Hall of Presidents, It's a Small World, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and Space Mountain when it opened. So those were the eight attractions that took the e-ticket to be able to get into them. Now, what made it interesting was these booklets uh, actually were printed on a uh, kind of a heavier paper stock, and they um, they were color-coded, so you, you could see which one of the tickets w- each one was. So, like, the A was sort of a yellowish color, and the E was sort of a greenish color, and there was a blue and a sort of a purple in there. And they had these designs on them that were sort of anti-counterfeiting designs. It was sort of a, a watermark in there and different things that were going on on the paper to make it so that it would be difficult to counterfeit. And then each ticket, of course, had a, a specific number on it, so they were, they were numbered tickets. And the rationale here was that, think about 1972, there wasn't a lot of printing technology that was available. It would be hard to counterfeit a ticket that had that sort of security system on it with the watermarks and so forth. And uh, Disney found that to be fairly successful over the years, though there were cases where people were able to recreate these because they had the ability to print, or in some cases they were stolen and the, and the tickets were reused and so forth. They were paper-based, so uh, when you would get the ticket uh, and hand it to a, a cast member to get into one of the attractions, the cast member was supposed to tear it and put it into a bin so that the ticket couldn't be reused. There were some instances, as we hear it, that uh, cast members were not always tearing the tickets and then were turning them over to other people for reuse. We don't know how much of that was true, but there were some stories about that floating around. Oh, and by the way, one other little factoid for you. They had these little ticket books, and you could use them at Walt Disney World, but most people don't know this. You could have taken the tickets that you purchased at Disneyland or Walt Disney World and used them in each other's parks. Because the price point was really the same, and people didn't really travel across country the way they do today, uh, Disney allowed for the uh, same tickets to be used in either park. So if you had an A ticket from the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World, you could go and use that at uh, Disneyland and vice versa. That's kind of a funny little thing, isn't it? Now, as the years went on, and there was the potential for more counterfeiting, and of course the fact that you had to have paper tickets and people had to carry them and you had to tear them up, and there was always paper littering everywhere, and uh, people would not use their A tickets necessarily because they didn't want to ride the trolley or whatever, things like that would kind of go to waste, and it seemed like a huge waste. So Disney decided at some point that they needed to make a change. Now, did you ever wonder why it was called the Transportation and Ticket Center? That's because you could purchase tickets at that center. So you would bring in your car and park it in the Magic Kingdom parking lot. Then you would go up to the Transportation and Ticket Center and purchase your ticket so that you could then ride the monorail. Because remember that the monorail required a ticket. There was actually a ticket taker that stood at the entrance to the monorail who would take your transportation ticket so that you could go and ride the monorail. So they had to actually have a ticket window to be able to sell tickets so that you could go into uh, into the Magic Kingdom. And again, it seems like it was kind of a different time. Now, if you were staying on property, of course, you could purchase your tickets there before heading over to the Magic Kingdom. Now, one other little interesting tidbit for you. In the 1970s through the 1980s, and maybe even to the early 90s, Disney offered uh, three different price categories for tickets. You had the uh, child's ticket that was from uh, ages 3 to 11. You had the junior ticket, which was from 12 to 17 years old. And then you had the uh, adult ticket that was 17 and up. 
So if you think about the price points, the uh, adult ticket was maybe a couple of dollars more than the junior ticket, and the child's ticket was a couple of dollars less than the junior ticket. So it kind of worked out that as you were at these different price points, you could have a family come in, and it was a very reasonable experience. And because they had that junior ticket, so you could have someone who was in their teen years having a price point that was a little bit lower than an adult ticket, and it actually worked out pretty well. Now, of course, they've done away with the junior ticket, and the child ticket is a more significant discount. I guess that kind of stays at the same ratio to the to the adult ticket, but uh, there's no more junior ticket in between, which is kind of funny. So my you know 13-year-old has to pay an adult price, which I guess makes sense, but it's kind of an interesting thing the way they worked that out. Now, by the time the 1980s came around, Disney made a subtle change, and they actually got rid of the A, B, C, D, and E tickets, and instead made it so that each attraction took the same ticket. So it was essentially the same whether you went on the Main Street trolley or whether you went into Space Mountain. Instead of one being an A ticket and one being an E ticket, each one was an attraction that took a ticket. And the way Disney kind of rebranded this was they sold adventure packs. So you had an 8-pack adventure, a 10-pack adventure, a 12-pack adventure, or a 16-pack adventure to be able to go into uh, any of the attractions you wanted to. So they would sell you these packets of the tickets, similar to the way they used to sell the A through E tickets, and it included the, still included the transportation ticket and also the admission ticket, but then you'd be able to get these, uh, these uh, attraction tickets. So you'd be able to go on the adventure and be able to see a bunch of the attractions. Now they sold the individual adventure tickets so that you could buy them again, or you could buy another packet while you were uh, roaming around the parks. They did have uh, ticket windows around the parks if you needed to purchase another ticket, whether it was back in the 70s and you were still buying the A, B, C, D, and E, or you were using these adventure tickets uh, to see any attractions, they had ticket windows all around the, the Magic Kingdom so that you could buy tickets again as you were going, uh, going through. Say you wanted to go on the Jungle Cruise and you didn't have enough tickets, you could walk up to a ticket window and buy another, uh, advent- buy another ticket to be able to go on it. Now the other thing they did was starting in about 1980, they started offering these uh, single day passports and for a little bit more money you could actually buy a pass to be able to go into the park and that included admission the transportation, and all of the attractions you wanted to ride on for that day. And it was actually a paper-based ticket, but it was a, um, a little bit larger, and the way they'd ask you to do it is to keep it on your wrist, and they'd have this little uh, elastic thing to put it on your wrist so that you'd go around through the day, and you just hold that up. Instead of handing the piece of paper to the uh, cast member, you'd just show them that, and they'd let you go on the attraction. And that worked out uh, pretty well. In fact, that was the, uh, the genesis for the idea to uh, create the multi-day tickets. So a couple of years after that, they actually started creating multi-day tickets. So you'd have a two-day adventure where you could go uh, into the Magic Kingdom for two days. And because these didn't expire, if you wanted to go one day and then come back next year and go the second day, you could do that. And uh, what they would do is, at the bottom of the ticket, there was a little section down there, and if it was a single-day ticket, they'd stamp it with the date when you went in. And then when you'd go back a second day, they'd stamp it with the date, and they had a little you know, uh, rubber stamp that they would stamp the date on there. And that way they could keep track of uh, who was going in there. Now, this one, this really took off. And in the, uh, about the mid-1980s, they started to do away with the paper-based tickets that were the, uh, the, the single attraction tickets, and instead they had the single-day pass that you would go in with. Now, one of the other cool things that they used to do, and this was true between the 1970s and into the 1980s, was if you would leave the park, so you had a park admission ticket um, that you would give when you'd walk in there, and it was only the Magic Kingdom that you had at the time, 
you would hand them your admission ticket, and then you would go around the park and do whatever you wanted to do. If you wanted to leave the park at some point and be able to come back later, they didn't give you a new admission ticket. Instead, what they would do is stamp your hand. So that way, when you came back up, you had a little invisible stamp that was on your hand. They, use a, they used a special ink that was only visible under uh, ultraviolet light. So that way, when you come back, you'd put your hand under the ultraviolet light, and uh, they would see the image on your hand, and they would let you back in the park. And it was really kind of cool because they had all these different stamps that they'd do. So every day you'd go, it would be a different stamp. And that was how they kind of kept track of it because people would stay at the resort, uh, maybe at the Contemporary or the Polynesian or whatever, and they'd be there and maybe they'd be there for a couple of days. And these really didn't wash off. Um, so you could go in the pool and whatever and then come back and uh, you'd find that they were still on there. So what they'd do is on a different day, they'd use a different symbol. So that way they didn't have to worry about you coming back the next day and just using your hand stamp um, because they could see which stamp it was. Now, one of the other things I remember about this very specifically is the hand stamp had a very specific smell to it. And it was sort of a almost an orangey smell, smelled almost like oranges, maybe like lemons a little bit. And it was kind of pungent, and it was really kind of neat because it, it had a very specific smell. And I can remember every time we'd go, we'd all be sniffing our hands because it smelled so neat. It was such a nice smell. You'd be sniffing your hand going, oh, that's really cool. I wonder what it looks like. And sometimes you'd walk over to the machine and go put your hand under the ultraviolet light to see what it was, what the stamp was that day. It was kind of fun. It was one of those, one of those things that's very memorable about uh, coming and going from the park. So as Disney progressed in their tickets, and there were different uh, types of tickets, this all-in-one admission really was a much better choice for them because they had, they had more opportunities to stop counterfeiting because you just had a single ticket that you could come and go from the park with. And that was actually pretty smart. And uh, over the years, they uh, increased the, um, the number of days that they made available. As different parks opened and they started to have Epcot, you had three-day passes now, and things were more, uh, were more open that way. By the time 1989 came around, they were thinking about multi-day passes. So they had a super pass and then a super-duper pass that they would offer. And these offered additional experiences like being able to go to the water parks, being able to go to Discovery Island, being able to go to Pleasure Island. So this was a, like a multi-day passport that included all of these other features. And again, they still had the uh, place to stamp the ticket at the bottom of it. Now, to keep counterfeiting down in this case, what they did was they actually had a, um, a little watermark on the back of the ticket, and then they also had uh, their own little uh, ticketing number system at the bottom so they could kind of keep track of what the numbers were and the tickets coming and going. Now, that didn't really help so much with counterfeiting, and what they, were what they found was over the years in the mid to late 1980s was people were able to reproduce these tickets and come into the parks without having purchased a an actual ticket. And so Disney had to think about how to, uh, how to change that and make it more effective for them and continue to evolve the tickets. Now, Disney had one other thing that was going on at the same time, and this was the ability to keep track of the number of guests that were in the park. So if you would come through the turnstiles in the, at the front entrance, they had the manual turnstiles that would keep track of the number of rotations that it went through so they'd know how many people came and went from the parks. But they also were tearing the tickets uh, for the uh, park admissions. They knew how many people had come through. And it was sort of a manual effort, and every so often they'd have to go out and uh, do the counts to figure out how many people were in the parks. That was a bit of a thorn in Disney's side. They couldn't figure out exactly how many people were in the park. They had a pretty good idea, uh, because you had the turnstiles that you'd go through, and it would count up how many times somebody had turned the turnstile, and they would know how many people had come through. Then they could deduct out the number of turnstile exits, 
and uh, find out how many people were in the park at any given time. But it was a little bit of a manual process, and they could count it against the number of torn tickets that they had in the box, which was a very cumbersome process, but they could certainly do that if they wanted to uh, really keep track of how many people were in the parks. They had some automated machines that would help them count them, but it really was kind of complicated for them to keep track of how many people were in the parks and you know what attendance looks like and so forth. And remember, the other thing was they knew how many tickets they'd sold and how many people were in the parks. There was really no measure of uh, people coming into the park and really how much they were spending and nothing about that. I don't know that Disney really cared at that point in time. Uh, they really were, uh, what they were all about was making sure that people came into the park and had a good time and were able to get in and enjoy themselves. It wasn't until much later that they started to think about customer contacts and history and how, many, how much were people were spending and what, the, uh, what everything looked like. It wasn't until much later that they started thinking about uh, the customer history and sort of the demographics and how many people were coming in and what they were spending and that sort of a thing. When the bean counters started looking at that information, that all changed because they wanted to know exactly how much was being spent. Now, uh, uh, by about 1992, they had made a change to uh, automatically stamp the tickets when you came in. You would put it into a machine and it would uh, stamp the ticket. And it made it a little bit easier to keep track of everything that was going on. So these tickets had a little barcode on them that was being read by the machine, and that way they could kind of offset counterfeiting a little bit more because the barcode was specific to Disney, and if it didn't read, then it wasn't a correct barcode. And each barcode was kind of unique so that they had a little bit of a system in there to keep track of all of their tickets, and that way uh, counterfeiters were kind of kept at bay just a little bit. Now, that doesn't mean that counterfeiters weren't smart and weren't finding other ways around it, but Disney was getting to a point where they had a little bit more control over the tickets. Now there's another interesting thing that was going on along the way. Disney had a, a differentiated ticket that they'd sell. If you were staying on property at one of the Disney Resort hotels, they would sell you a special type of ticket. And if you were a day guest coming in, you couldn't purchase that kind of ticket. So some of these super passes and super duper passes you couldn't purchase if you weren't staying at a resort. So that kind of sets the stage for a differentiated service. People who are staying at resorts today will get a little bit more of my magic where people who are day guests don't get that same experience. It's a similar kind of thing. You can see how the thinking goes to get up there. As we started to head into the mid-1990s, what you started to see was people were able to counterfeit a little more easily. These barcodes were easily cracked. The paper tickets, you could find that paper, same paper stock and people could reproduce the tickets. And there was another problem of people buying multi-day tickets and then selling the rest of their tickets or giving them to a friend of theirs to be able to use at a future time. Now, they set on them non-transferable, so Disney had the right to be able to kick people out of the parks or not accept the tickets. But the reality is it didn't always work that way, and it was hard to tell who was the original holder of that ticket. If you had a five-day ticket and you only used two of them, and then you handed the ticket to a friend and they went and used the other three, there was no way for Disney to know who had used the tickets. The other problem was there were people set up, these little ticket resellers set up all over the areas where uh, guests were staying off, off of Disney property. And you could walk up to one of them and you could sell your unused tickets to them. They would purchase them for cash and then they would resell them to the next person who happened along. And while it was against Disney's policy and maybe marginally legal, Strictly speaking, there wasn't a way to control this market. So what Disney did is they made a change to their tickets. Starting in 1994, they actually set up each ticket window, had a camera that was put in there. And what they would do is when they'd sell you the pass, whether it was an annual pass or a five-day pass or a, a three-day pass, they would take your picture and they would print it onto the ticket. And that way there was a little bit of an anti-counterfeiting measure that was going on. So you would go in and they would look at the picture and they would say, okay, you're the same person uh, that came through the last time. 
Now, if there was a different person in the picture, they would bar you from entering. So that was a very clever way that they kind of came around and worked against counterfeiting, I thought. Now, if I remember correctly, there was a lot of public outcry at that point in time. One of the key complaints was the guests didn't want to have their picture that was stored by Disney in some way, or that was used in that way because it was a privacy concern. Now, a different level of privacy, I realize, but there was a lot of talk about that, and people used to uh, think about what, it, what an impact it had, because now you, you didn't have the ability to use the tickets the way you wanted to use them, and you couldn't give them to a friend or sell them to someone. It was a completely different experience than it had been before, because now they were actually controlling access to the parks based on who was using the tickets. Now, that lasted for a couple of years while they thought about what to do next. So, two years later, in 1996, Disney made a change to get rid of the pictures on there and instead put the magnetic stripe on the cards that you see today. And this allowed them to use a standard ticket stock. Now, up until that point, every one of their tickets was a little bit different in terms of the stock that was going on. Depending on which park you purchased it at, you might get a different uh, ticket than uh, if you got it at a different park. So if you bought it at the Magic Kingdom, it may look different than it did, say, at the uh, Epcot. And so they, they actually standardized their tickets, and they actually brought them down to a standard size. It was more like a wallet-sized card that you see today. And it was a, a paper-based ticket, but it had that magnetic stripe on the back. And there was some other information that was stored on there to be able to keep track of who was coming and going from the park. And this was the point at which they did away with the hand stamps completely. Up until that point, the hand stamps were still there, but rarely used. Uh, they kind of stopped using them in the early 1990s for the most part, though... You could still get it because you would come back in and just show your ticket with the, with the date on it and you'd be able to come back in. Now with the magnetic stripe, you didn't have to use that uh, hand stamp anymore. And now is where they put in the machines that actually kept track of how many times you were coming in the park. They had everything computerized. They could see everybody that was coming and going. And it gave them a much easier time of keeping track of how many guests were in the park at any given time. Now the year before Animal Kingdom opened in 1998, so back in 1997, they actually made a change to allow for six- and seven-day tickets. They'd never sold a ticket of that length before. Up to that point, the longest ticket you could buy was a five-day ticket. Uh, but now in 1997, they started offering a, a, a six- and seven-day ticket so that you could really experience the park. Now, Disney made a much more significant change in 1999. In 99, they did away with all of the all-in-one tickets, and that was that uh, Super Pass or the Super Duper Pass that allowed you to go to everything. So you could go in and you could uh, visit all the parks and the water parks and Pleasure Island and so on. Now, up until about 1996, you really the only way you could go see multiple parks in the same day was if you got a special ticket or you were an annual pass holder and you could go to multiple parks. Uh, really, it was difficult uh, to go to uh, different parks until that time. Then in 1996, they started offering World Hopper and Park Hopper passes that allowed you to go to multiple parks in the same day. Since there were four parks, they decided that they'd allow people to, uh, to change parks throughout the day and go to a different one. So that, that became a kind of a, an interesting twist because Disney had never really considered that before. Yeah, they let people with annual passes and certain types of passes go to different parks, but they really never had thought about people going to multiple parks in the same day. So uh, as they introduced those things, uh, the guests really responded to it. So that meant that by 1999, they were making changes to tickets so that they were getting rid of some of these single-day value passes and some of these other uh, featured passes and selling you the uh, the ticket package that people, the guests, really wanted. So they were selling these uh, Park Hoppers and Park Hopper Plus that included all these other features that, like, the all-in-one pass had. So the Plus option might include things like going into uh, the water parks or going to Pleasure Island and so forth. 
And it was a difference that uh, that was kind of subtle, but f- pretty significant for Disney. And it allowed for uh, them to sell, set a different ticket price for uh, for these uh, types of tickets to be able to get into parks and uh, be able to uh, park hop and do different things that, that the guests wanted to do. Now, the other thing was, up until really that point, there was the ability to reuse a ticket at any time. So they started adding no expiration options onto tickets around that time. So if you purchased a ticket, it would have an expiration, uh, you know, a shelf life on it, essentially. Now, if you hadn't used the ticket, if you bought a one-day ticket and you never used it, that's fine. Or if you bought a three-day ticket and you never used it, that that's fine. But as soon as you used that first day, you had to use the other days within 14 days, unless you purchased the no expiration option, in which case you could use it again later. So by the time the uh, the 2000s rolled around, those those tickets were uh, really doing very well for Disney, and they were finding ways to kind of tweak it a little bit. And to be able to uh, address the guests' needs and wants and desires to allow guests to come and go to the parks as they wanted to. Then they'd sell, uh, ultimately they started selling ultimate park hoppers that allowed for all of these different features. The ultimate park hopper included all four parks and the, uh, the extras, that pl- those plus features. Plus they had no expiration and so forth. So they were giving everybody what they wanted. And then as you rolled through the, uh, the, uh, the late 2000s and into uh, 2010s, you've seen that kind of evolve a little bit more. Uh, more recently, they've taken away the no expiration options. You can't buy tickets with no expiration. You uh, you have to uh, pay extra for pretty much every little feature you want. You buy the, the base ticket, and then if you want to add additional things to it, so if you want to add Park Hopper or you want to add uh, some of the other uh, features to go somewhere else, they would uh, they would change that. Now, those became the Magic Your Way tickets, which makes sense, I guess, because you, you could have Magic the way you wanted it, and you could kind of pick and choose some of the features you wanted to have. And the other thing they introduced uh, in uh, the late 1990s and early 2000s was the use of the biometric finger scan. So what that means is you, um, when you use your ticket the first time, you put your finger on a little scanner, and it checks the biometrics of your finger. It's not doing a fingerprint. It's really just looking at the length of your finger, the size of your finger, and uh, sort of the dimensioning. So that the next time you go to the park, you put your uh, finger on the scanner, and it's going to verify that you are the same person based on the biometric readings as the person who used the ticket the last time. It's kind of a clever way to counteract some counterfeiting uh, without being too personal or trying to get into, uh, you know, doing a fingerprint or something like that. And it's kind of smart in a way. They figured out a a way to use biometrics to kind of offset some of the counterfeiting. Um, Disney has continued to crack down on them over the years and go after people with quite a vengeance if they they catch people who who are counterfeiting tickets. Here's where we head into My Magic. You know, My Magic is a natural extension of what's going on there. Using an RFID tag instead of using the, uh, the, the swipe ticket is a kind of a smart thing because it can keep track of everybody that comes and goes from the park very quickly and easily tell you exactly how many people are in the park and tell you kind of what people's patterns are around the park so they can tell you exactly where did you go in the park, that sort of thing. So they can kind of use that to uh, improve the guest experience or at least on the surface that's what it would be all about. Though I have my, sometimes I have my doubts about what the, uh, what the actual intent is, it certainly seems like that's uh, something that, uh, that Disney could do. And so they're talking about other possible changes that would include maybe a loss of benefits for those of us who are day guests or annual pass holders, and um, maybe not offering some of the f- same features to us that they offer to people who are vac- vacationers or people who are staying at the, uh, at the resorts. And, uh, of course, they'll have uh, different price points to accommodate this as well because they're already talking about having a different price during peak seasons than they have during off-season. 
And, you know, you kind of go, well, you know, is that good or bad? I think it's actually kind of bad because you really differentiate the service to a large degree. And, uh, you know, you, you encourage certain entitlements that go along with it. Look, back in, 19, in the early 1970s, it didn't cost that much. It was a place where everyone could go. And, you know, it kind of lived up to Walt's idea of it being everybody's park. It was for everybody. And now you're starting to see it become sort of a rich man's playground. And yeah, I get it because, you know, people have a little more disposable income. They're willing to spend it. People save up a long time to go on vacation to Disney World and so forth. So I, I kind of get it. It'll be interesting to see where it all nets out. But what I really wanted to do today was just give you a sense of how tickets had changed, how Disney protects itself against counterfeiting, and how the price has gone over the years. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, the price point has gone up significantly. Uh, the service has certainly been there, and they continue to meet and exceed my expectations, and I think that's great. But it, at what point does it become almost unreachable, unattainable for me? My, you know, my salary doesn't go up significantly every year, but the price point keeps going up faster than my salary does. So it's harder and harder for me to go affordably uh, like I used to. I have to use more of my disposable income to be able to go up and visit the parks. Still love it, still want to go, still want to be a part of it, um, but it's just interesting how it's, how it's changed over the years, and uh, that's why I wanted to present this podcast to you to talk about some of the changes that have gone on and where we are with, uh, with the uh, price points and kind of how we got to here and what the tickets look like. So I hope I've provided you with a little bit of insight and a little bit of something to think about when it comes to the parks and the tickets and how things have changed. You can go to my uh, show notes page and I'll pr provide some links and some pictures to some of the tickets that uh, that existed and how that changed over the years. Um, so if you're interested in kind of looking through the history of it, you can certainly look through it. Um, but I just wanted to present this because it's something I've been thinking about for a while and how it relates to my magic. So I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Uh, and uh, remember, if you have any questions or thoughts or uh, comments, please feel free to send them to me at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. I'm always happy to hear feedback from people. Uh, I think it's always interesting to hear what people think and what their perspectives are as well. Well, that's it for this time, and I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. Show notes can be found on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. Looking to do some travel planning? Want to find an authorized Disney vacation planner? You should visit Destinations in Florida. Original music you hear in this podcast is courtesy of Sound On Music. You can find his music at ReverbNation.com slash SoundA. Our thanks also go to Doug, for his continued contributions to the show. You can find links to other great Disney podcasts, as well as the latest Twitter feed and the Disney Buzz on DisneyPodcast.net. And don't forget to check out Dave's iPhone apps. There's a Hidden Mickeys app for finding and sharing hidden Mickeys at all of the Disney parks around the world. There's also an app designed especially for pin traders. You can keep track of all your pins and your wish lists. Please be generous with your time or a donation to Autism Speaks. We do hope that you've enjoyed your visit and that you drive home safely. Show number 139.